0: Hi, my name is Paul Crandall and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment. Whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc@isunrise.com. at That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're gonna find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. Good morning, good to see you, glad that you are here, and I hope hope your week's been good. I don't know if you enter into this room today and maybe you're a little sad, you know, maybe you're a Laker fan and you're like, oh man, can we just have a collective sigh for us Laker fans? Wow, welcome to Sunrise, we're a welcoming church. If you come broken and beaten up, we will go, no, or whatever that noise was. No no I, I you know but on a serious note, wherever wherever you're coming from, whatever stage you're in right now or whatever season you're in right now, or maybe it's just been a week or a day, it's just been a morning. Whatever it is, I am really, really excited uh, that you are here. We are journeying through the writings of Luke so we're going through the Gospel of Luke and another book that he wrote called the Book of Acts. and we've been kind of tracking different themes and topics as we walk through those two books and and the one we're in right now is we're looking at different women in the writings of Luke, and ladies, I just want you to know, the majority of the ladies we're going to look at, they're going to be admirable, they're going to be awesome, we should follow their example, except for today, okay? Now, I I need to tell you, so you're not like, Pastor Paul, this is kind of rude, last year when we set out the preaching calendar, this message was supposed to be on Mother's Day. Yes, so you're welcome, okay? Okay. You're not going to like me after this one. But the Mother's Day one, we just decided to kind of switch. Because what we're going to find, I hate to say it, is that there's a couple in our passage today that are going to be a negative example for us. They're not going to do the things that are honoring to the Lord. So it's going to be kind of just a little bit of a letdown uh, when it comes to finding a hero in our passage today. And what we're actually going to realize is in this kind of first century movement that's happening, because we'll be in Acts chapter 5, so the the church kind of just started. It's getting momentum after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his teaching. After that moment, he ascends. The Holy Spirit comes down on the church, on the community, the followers of Jesus Christ. Things are just moving, man. It's a dynamic movement. And then it runs into problems. And you know what? When we think about it, the church has problems, doesn't it? You could say amen to that. You're like, I don't know, I'm in church. Should I, should I say The church has problems, whether it's in the first century world or the 21st century world. The church has problems. And why does it have problems? Because it's filled with people, right? And people have problems. And on a serious note, it's true, right? We, we get hurt by other people. And sadly, we hurt other people. And so there are problems that exist. And we see a problem in the first century church. And this problem is a big problem. Because the problem affects the purity of the church. And when we affect the purity of the church, we affect the witness of the church. Think about it. If somebody is trying to help you, if they're trying to guide you along to get you to do something that you should do, you know you should do, but it's hard for you to do. Is it easy to take help from a hypocrite? No. Right? Somebody's trying to tell, well, you should do this, and they're not doing that thing in their life. So, if the church's mission is to help the world, the church's mission is to help those who are far away from Jesus Christ, to bring them closer to Jesus Christ, if the church is hypocritical, who wants the church's help? In fact, I would say most of my friends who, who aren't followers of Jesus and don't go to church, if I were to ask them, hey, give me some reasons as to why you don't go to church, you know what's going to be number one on the list or probably pretty high up there? The church is full of hypocrites. And so what we're going to see in the first century church in Acts chapter 5 is that this problem is going to come up and it's going to affect the purity of the church. It's going to fill it with hypocrisy. And this feeling of the the, the church with hypocrisy is going to ruin the integrity of its persuasive message because no one wants to listen to a hypocrite. The purity of the church is so important. Now, when I say purity, I want to make sure this is very clear. I'll say it several times in our message today just to make sure it's clear. When we talk about purity, we're not talking about perfection. That's a standard we can't meet. The Bible is very realistic and tells us that. That we can't meet this perfect standard that wasn't the expectation Jesus had with his, with his disciples. When we say purity, what we, we don't mean perfection. What we mean is repentance. And what repentance means is I admit when I'm wrong. I made that mistake, I hurt you, I'm sorry, I did this thing that was not in line with God's will. We admit it and we turn from it. That's repentance. To admit, to confess, and to turn from it. And when the church loses a posture of repentance, it loses its credibility. And it loses its ability to fulfill the mission of God, to help the world. And this is what we see in Acts chapter 5. And the purity of the church is so incredibly important... Satan is out there to destroy it. And the Holy Spirit is out there or in here to protect it. In fact, there's a spiritual war going on right now for the purity of the church. Because Satan would love to destroy the church's witness. And what's a great way to do that? Fill it full of hypocrites. Compromise the integrity of the church. Get them to be persuaded that their disobedience isn't bad. That the scriptures aren't that reliable. That the conviction of the spirit should just be suppressed. That they should just follow their own hearts and their desires. Satan doesn't advertise his destruction. At least outright. What does he do? He gives us like a cyanide candy. and says "With oh, the outside it's pleasing. But inside there's death. And what I think we're going to take away from this message is this. Kind of very sober reality that there is a spiritual war for the purity of the church. And the Holy Spirit sees it as a priority to protect the purity of the church. And Satan sees it as a priority to destroy the purity of the church. In fact, the big idea for today, if you're going to write down one thing. This might be my favorite big idea I've ever given here at Sunrise. The big idea is this. Satan goes to church. Ooh. I didn't get any amens from that one. That's okay, I think. Satan goes to church. I honestly believe he may have perfect attendance. Because this is the place where his agenda, where his mission has its weak point. This right here, this space right here, this time right here, where we open up God's word and we submit ourselves to it, this is the time, this is the time where his offense is most in jeopardy. So why would he not put his efforts here? He doesn't go to church to worship. He goes to church to make war. War on the purity of the congregation, on the purity of its followers, to deceive them into thinking that the deeds that they do God's indifferent to and they can let hypocrisy happen in their lives and we're going to see in Acts chapter 5 Satan will disguise himself not outright sin not outright rebellion he'll disguise himself in something that looks pure something that looks religious something that looks holy he'll hide behind that and his goal is to plant a seed in the early church of hypocrisy and vanity that would destroy its witness to the world. Let me show you this. Acts chapter 5 verse 1. Moms, you're thinking, I'm so glad this wasn't Mother's Day's message. I agree with that. Amen to that. Look at Acts chapter 5 verse 1. It says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. So here's the woman that we don't want to follow. You'll see as we get there later. Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, right there at first glance, this seems like a pretty awesome church service. People are selling real estate and just bringing that money and laying it at the apostles' feet. Would it not be pretty cool if you came in this Sunday and somebody's like, man, I just felt led. I sold my home and I'm just giving all the money, Pastor Paul, to the leaders of this church to use as they see fit. And they just lay down like a briefcase, boom, that of course pops open and all the Benjamins start flying out, right? And like, wow, wouldn't that be a cool service? You're like, I'm coming to that church. So, so far, so good. Things look good. And this has been a pattern in the early church. I mean, the Holy Spirit is moving. God is moving. The mission and message of Jesus Christ is just, it's just going out. Things are exciting. Acts chapter 4, right before this, Barnabas, a leader in the church, he'll become even more of a leader later on in the book of Acts. He will sell a piece of property and he'll give all the proceeds away. Just lay it at the apostles' feet and say, hey, let's just go after people. Let's Let's just expand the message of Jesus Christ in this world. So Ananias and Sapphira, they sell a piece of property. And they give some of the proceeds to the apostles. What's so wrong here? Doesn't this look good? This looks nice on the surface. Looks religious. Looks sacrificial. I mean, if you think about it, in a, in a in 21st century America, like home ownership is a lot higher than it would be in 1st century Palestine. To own property would put you in kind of the upper class. So these probably are wealthy people. And selling a piece of property, just like if we sold a piece of property now, I mean, that would net a large sum of money. So this is a significant offering. But here's what we're going to see. Peter, one of the leaders of the church, he's not going to see this as a gift. Rather, he'll see it as a threat. Which is interesting. I mean, what, what startup company doesn't want Capital. Right? Maybe you've been a part of a startup. Right? You've got this new idea, this new invention, this new widget, this new app, this new thing. You've got all these creative people, right? but you're all eating top ramen just trying to figure things out. But you've got something innovative. You've got something creative, but you don't have a ton of money. And so you need an investor. You need some capital. to Let this thing kind of take off and really get into the market. Who doesn't want capital? Here's an early movement. Speaking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's better than a widget or a program or anything like that. I mean, that's significant. And so they get this capital. They get an investor. Shouldn't it be seen as a gift? No. It's seen as a threat. Because there's something behind this gift that nobody else can see. But the Spirit sees. And the Spirit will reveal that to Peter. We get a little bit of a clue. Go back to Acts chapter 5. Look at the word used in verse 2. It says, And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself. That word right there is a very interesting word in the Greek. So, this translation here, it's not the, it's a good translation, but it's not the clearest, right? Because us, it just sounds like, okay, he gave a portion of the proceeds, not a big deal. Why is that a big deal? Well, that word right there is used in other ancient documents to talk about financial fraud. In fact, that same word is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament in a story in Joshua chapter 7. And in Joshua chapter 7 verse 1, there's a man named Achan. And Achan decided after the conflict that God's people had with the city of Jericho, Jericho after this conflict there was plunder, plunder from the conflict, plunder from the battle. And God said, I don't want you to get rich off this plunder. You devote that plunder to destruction. And Achan said, Ah, how about I keep back for myself some of the plunder? And then God punished him for that. A better word would be embezzled. Right? Embezzled is that you're taking something that is not yours. You can't embezzle funds from yourself. You're embezzling when you take money that's not allotted to you. So what happened with Ananias and Sapphira? Right now, and we'll see this later when we get further into the chapter, they probably made a pledge. They saw Barnabas give this huge gift. He, he sold this property, gave all the proceeds away. And then they said, oh, yeah, guys, we'll do that. Hey, Peter, we've got some property. We're going to sell it. And like, like Barnabas, we're going to give it all to you guys. So they sold it. They get this large sum of money. And they're like, ooh, let's just take a little bit. Now, now think about this. It would be hard to be discreet in the first century world with giving a large sum of money. They didn't have like wire transfers, right, automatic giving, or write a check where you could put a bunch of zeros on a piece of paper and that means something. No, there's probably like a physical sum, a large amount And people knew, I'm not saying that people in first century world were like commercial real estate, but I bet they knew how much property was worth. So if they get this pledge, and then Ananias and Sapphira lowball it, people are going to be like, wait a second, that's not the whole thing. So my guess is they only took off maybe a sliver of the profits for themselves. They embezzled that because they made a pledge to give it all. Look how Peter diagnoses what's really going on here. He's given supernatural knowledge to what's going on. Verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? To keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? What is, what's revealed to Peter. You didn't give everything that you pledged. Now, Peter tells him, hey, man, this whole thing was voluntary. You didn't have to give it. Why did you give it? Man, when it was in your own, it's at your own disposal. When you sold it, all those proceeds are at your disposal. So the first century church wasn't demanding if you ever make any money off of selling your home, whether it be a rental or your primary property, whatever it is, you got to give it all to the church. No, they didn't make that demand. He had the liberty to do whatever he wanted. But Peter said, you lied. Lied? How did he lie? Again, I think the assumption is fair. He made a pledge and he wasn't true to it. That's how he lied. The problem wasn't the sum of money. The problem is what he said. He said he gave it all, but he didn't. Now look at this. How did this start? Go back. It was revealed to Peter. Look at verse 3. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Satan has filled your heart. It's so interesting. Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit fall on the community of believers. He fills them, and they have this dynamic boldness to go out and to share the message of Jesus Christ. We see the church persecuted, right? They come and they pray, and after they pray, it says the Holy Spirit fills the room. And they become even more bold. So who's been going to church so far? Holy Spirit. He's been there. But now there's another supernatural being who happens to be attending church. And who is it this time? Satan. Now Satan's coming to church. Because he's got to stop this movement. He's got to stop this message of the resurrected Jesus Christ as the victor over death and the one who can forgive sins. He's got to stop this. And where is it exploding from? This community of believers. So he fills Ananias' heart. Wow. And what's Ananias doing? He's worshiping. And from the outside looking, he's worshiping. He's giving a gift. He's supporting the church. You see how Satan disguises his efforts, right? He just kind of makes it look sort of good, right? We, we often think of the activity of Satan as this like demonstrative kind of exaggeration of evil, right? He's this guy who's red and wears red spandex, which I don't know why he's wearing spandex, right? And then he's got like a pitchfork and he's got horns, right? And if you're honest, you look at that and what do you do? You judge him. You don't look at him and be like, oh, you know what, babysitter, high-quality dude right there. I love the pitchfork, got the kind of triton thing going on, mermaid, little Ariel. This is a trustworthy person. No, all of us profile Satan. All of us do, right? All of us are judging him. The the horns, they kind of give it away. The wrinkly skin, the redness, he just looks weird, right? And it's true. It's true in the sense of there are egregious evils that we could tie back to demonic activity, to the work of Satan. But there are subtle evils that I think are even more insidious. In fact, it is a strategy of Satan to infiltrate the community of God, to fill our hearts with lies, with deceit, to convince us this is okay. And he is just feeding us what? Cyanide candy. Oh, it tastes good on the outside. But on the inside, what is it? It's death. It's death. And Ananias and Sapphira, probably pure in heart, pledged to give. But then they saw that sum. Satan spoke into them. And they lied about what they did. Now, doesn't mean Ananias is off the hook here. Right. What does it say? Not only did Satan fill his heart, at the very end of verse 4, it says, what is this that you have contrived, this deed in your heart? Peter's not saying, oh Satan made you do it, no big deal. What does he say? Ananias, you followed your heart. You followed your heart. And your heart was sinful. You know one of the worst things you can do? Follow your heart. Because your heart Scripture says, is deceptively wicked. No one can know it. But who can know it? The Holy Spirit can know it. God can know it. Right? As followers of Jesus Christ, we don't follow our heart. That's not what we do. We follow the Scriptures. And if our heart aligns with the Scriptures, then we know that God is working in us to will and to act according to his great purpose. But that order is important. God is moving. In the Psalms it says, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Can't flip that. Give me the desires of my heart. That will be what's delighting the Lord. No, that's the wrong order. The order is what? I delight myself in the things of God, the things that are above me. And as I delight myself in the Lord, he starts to change my heart, and I start to want the same things that he wants. He transforms me. If we follow our heart, that is a recipe for disaster. Satan would love for you to follow your heart just like Ananias did. Because we all know deep down inside of us, We want things that we should not have. We want things that are against God's way. Naturally, right? Men, married men in this room. Naturally in your heart. Naturally. Is monogamy in there? To stay committed to one woman for the rest of your life? I'll just admit right now, no, that's not naturally in me. But I know that's the best way for me. Why? Because this book tells me so. And as I've lived that, I've found that to be true. But I don't trust this. I don't trust this. That's why I have this. Because without this, I'll do the same thing that Ananias did. I'll be susceptible to the lies of Satan to deceive me, to fill my heart. And then in my heart, I'll lie. In my heart, I'll lust. In my heart, I'll be angry. In my heart, I'll murder. In my heart, I will do a lot of things that will destroy me. Don't follow your heart. Follow the scriptures. Let God change your heart. And when your heart says, hey, we should do this, you take this book. And you say, is that true? Or is that the voice of Satan? Because Satan comes to church. He loves to come to church. And, and Luke actually records this. If we go to Luke chapter 22, verse 3, I believe it is. We see that Jesus. not only does Satan love to go to the first century church. He loved to break into Jesus' small group. Jesus had this small group of like, disciples, we call them apostles, the 12 apostles. I mean, not even Jesus' small group is safe from satanic activity. If any place would be safe, wouldn't that be it? But look what Luke records. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the number of the 12. Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus. Later on in Luke chapter 22, we see that he goes after another apostle. His name is Peter. And Jesus says, Peter, Satan has demanded you to sift you like wheat, to destroy you. I truly believe, I do, I think Satan has perfect attendance in church. But he's not coming to worship. He's coming to ruin its witness. He's coming to destroy the purity of the church. And he is disguising himself in things that look religious. Things that look spiritual. Things that we naturally can't see on the surface. We would say, wow, and a nice, great gift. And the Holy Spirit reveals what? That's not a gift. That's a threat. And if we let this seed of hypocrisy grow, and this church will ruin its witness. Now look at how the Holy Spirit comes in. Because Peter confronts the reality of the sin right there. It's revealed to him supernaturally. But look at how the Spirit takes over. I said it's a spiritual war. And in war, there's there's damage, right? Right? Look at this. This is the movement that happens in the first century church. Acts chapter 5, verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you conceived this deed in your heart? Why have you lied? Why have you not lied to man, but to God? When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. This is the first example of a youth ministry in the first century church. Yeah, so if you, our youth will take care of you. If you write, you just, boom, they got you, okay? Jacob, that's, that's in your job description now. Carry away the dead. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We got to make it a little light. This is a heavy message, okay? But look at verse 5. Just Holy Spirit comes in and takes him out. And I don't think we could take this as like, man, he heard some hard words from the preacher. He heard some hard words from Peter. And so he's like, oh, heart attack. No, they don't see this as happenstance, the first century church. They bury him right away. And they don't even tell his family. They just bury him. Which tells us, that custom tells us, that practice tells us, they saw him cursed by God. That that's what happened. The Holy Spirit said, nope, we're not doing that. Now, just, let's just pause for a moment. At first glance, you're like, wow, large sum of money laid at the apostles' feet, right? The suitcase pops open, all the Benjamins fall out, I want to go to that church. Yeah, they play a couple songs, that man comes in, and then he dies in the middle of service. Now do you want to go to that church? You're probably thinking, nope, I don't want to go there. People are dying to get in or out. Yeah, thank you. I got like a, uh, okay, okay, sorry for the dad joke, okay? Right, but now here's... here's Here's why I think this is challenging for us, and I think it should be challenged for us as we read this story, as we read this account, as Luke records it for us. It, sound, I mean, it just goes against our conventional kind of modern thinking. Right? In, in our modern thinking, what we, what we say to ourselves is, you know what, man, if it doesn't hurt anybody and it makes them happy, just leave them alone. I call it the hurt and happy test. Man, nobody's really hurt. The individuals are happy. Just leave them alone. That is not holy thinking. Like, think about it. Why did Peter have to say something? Just let it go, dude. Let it go. You have frozen in your head when I said it twice? I do. You tell me, Dad. Let it go. Why couldn't he just let the sin go? I mean, who would have known? I mean, you get this large sum of money, they probably took a sliver because people would have known what property would have been valued at that point. So you can't really create this great lie and only give like 15 bucks or a couple shekels of like, no, we know you have bigger property than that. So he only probably took a sliver. He lied about it. Why is that such a big deal? Peter, let it go. See that that thinking of it doesn't hurt anybody. As long as they're happy, just let it go. That's not holy thinking. And here's why, a couple reasons. First off, we assume in that formula that we know how hurtful sin can be. And we don't know. We don't have a true awareness. Right? Sin is not this thing that we can just like ziplock, put away and hide in the freezer. No, Sin is insidious. It grows and it propagates more sin. It's infectious. So if we let it stay, it won't stay contained. If we let it be, it won't be contained. It'll just grow. And Satan knows that. That's why he contrived this plan. To put a little bit of hypocrisy in the heart of Ananias. Knowing if this grows, I can get all of them. And the Holy Spirit knows that too. He took this very seriously. He didn't see this as just an isolated, insulated, it won't hurt nobody. No, we don't understand how heinous, harmful, and hurtful sin is. We underestimate its effects. So that formula, if it won't hurt anybody, that first part, we don't know. We don't know how devastating it is. And we don't know what true happiness is. We don't. We know what instant gratification feels like. But we are prone to miss the long-run pleasure of obedience. We settle for what is satisfying in the moment or what we think is good and what our heart wants. But we are so easily deceived. So that formula doesn't work. And also, what's wrong in that formula is we underestimate our obligation to our brother, to our neighbor, to our sister in Christ. There are so many commands in the scriptures that tell us that we should watch for unbelief creeping in the heart of others, not just ourselves. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, absolutely, and calls us to repent. But it also reveals to us the sin of others and calls on us to show them the pathway of repentance. You are your brother's keeper, you are responsible. Now, is he more responsible? Yes. But to let them go away, well, let them be free. I got to respect their autonomy. Oh. If you've ever had an addict in your family, if you've ever been an addict, respecting their choices to take another hit, right, to scratch the itch, you ask an addict if they're free. Ask them, right? And look into their eyes and see their bondage. Are they getting what they want? In some sense, yeah. Are they feeding that internal hunger? Yeah, they are. But they're in bondage. That's not freedom. Sin is not freedom. Sin is tyranny. We are not helping our brother when we allow them to put chains on themselves. And we are obligated to say, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't go that way. Now, here in our passage, it seems like there was no opportunity. Right? There was no opportunity to repent. I said the standard wasn't perfection. You've got to hear that. It's not perfection, it's repentance. You're not going to be perfect. And the expectation is not to be perfect. And Peter's not expecting perfection. Now, with Ananias' case, he just confronts them and bam, the Holy Spirit takes care of it. But we, we, I think it's not fair to assume, or it's not right to assume that we have all the details of that conversation and interaction. In fact, what we see in the next conversation he has, the conversation he has with Ananias' wife, Sapphira, shows us that God still gives an opportunity to repent. Right? Look at how it unfolds for us. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours. Okay, so if you ever complain that our church services are too long, they did it for three hours. Okay? It's a new standard. It's biblical. Okay, and after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened can you imagine just being in that first service right you're there you see the large sum of money man this is great man things are going good a couple things happen you see peter say something guy drops dead bam you're like oh this this is interesting the youth ministry comes in they take him away they bury him everybody says this is cursed by god that's that's clear his wife comes in stands right next to you and you're like You know, Can we get to the greeting time? I need to shake hands and get out of here. (laughs) Can you imagine the tension in the room? And it says she doesn't even know. She doesn't know what happened to her husband. She's unaware. So at this moment, she doesn't know that her, her husband died at the hands of the Holy Spirit. She has no idea. And look what Peter says to her. Gives her an opportunity to repent. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Oh, man, can you imagine being in that service and you're just thinking to yourself, just say it, just say it, just say it. I don't want to be in here. I don't want to see this again. That was really weird. If you fall, I'm not catching you. I'll let the youth ministry take care of it. Can you imagine what you'd be feeling at that moment? I can't imagine what that was like. But I, I would probably—it would probably be a very somber time. It said fear struck the congregation, a very somber time, and you're thinking to yourself, please, please, just repent, just confess, just get it out, just get it out. And again, she doesn't know, right? So exposure would not be a motivation for her to confess. She doesn't know. Right? That evidence hasn't been revealed to her. They're like, hey, by the way, we had a camera underneath the cell of the property. We know. We have evidence to prove otherwise. Will you confirm the evidence? No. All she has is her integrity. That's all she has to motivate her. And her sensitivity to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's all she has to save her life. That's all she has. And the opportunity is right there. And Peter says, so how much? How much did you sell it for? Oh. And she doesn't take it. She doesn't take it. And what happened to her husband happens to her. Look what happens, verse 9. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Now this is interesting When Peter confronted Ananias, what did he say? You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You pledged this amount. You said you met that pledge, but you didn't. You kept a portion for yourself. Satan filled your heart to do that. And because the Spirit believes in the purity of this community, no, you're out. Now, Peter didn't call down a curse on Ananias. He didn't do that. He confronted the sin, and the Holy Spirit did the rest. And now we have Peter confronting Sapphira, and he adds something to this. Instead of saying lying, he says what? You have tested the spirit of the Lord. What does that mean? doesn't mean he's giving God like a pop quiz. Like what's pi? 3.1415926, right? It's like he's not doing that. What does this word mean? A good way to think of this is like taunting. You have taunted the spirit of the Lord. It's like driving on the freeway, intentionally speeding by a cop. Yeah, and you're like, Let's just see how far and how fast I can go, right? It's like, it's like taking a walk in your neighborhood and you see a dog chained up in the front yard near you and you, you're like, oh, he can't do anything. And he's barking. You're like, this dog's so annoying. So you get in front of his face. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And he's barking and barking. And you're hoping that chain doesn't break. That's what they did. They tested. The patience of God. And guess what happened? The dog bit. And bit hard. We do this, right? When we make light of our sin, we test God. Ah, what is he really going to do? Right? What is he really going to do? In the scriptures, sometimes the phrase is used that, you know, the hand of the Lord is short. Right? The idea there is, enemies of God are saying oh he can't reach us he can't see my secret sin that I hold on to that I keep from my family he can't see those areas of my life and he's not really going to do anything he's a mystical power maybe that made the world but he doesn't he doesn't worry about my my little sin do not test the patience of God do not taunt the Almighty that is not a place to be Especially when your sin affects the mission of the church. And all sin affects the mission of the church. Because it compromises its integrity. The world doesn't want help from a room of hypocrites who hold on to their sin. Maybe the sins that aren't the the marquee sins. And it keeps its vanity and its pride and its greed. And those things that look virtuous maybe in the American eye. And so we keep those sins, and we like those sins, and we worship with those sins, and we offer sacrifices that are very much like Ananias and Sapphira. And we think God's not going to do anything, and nobody can see anything. This isn't hurting anybody, and I'm happy with my Christianity, where it's at, and kind of the sterile ground of where I am. And God's really not going to move and do anything. Friend, do not test the patience of God. Do not taunt the Almighty. Because the Holy Spirit will keep the purity of his church. It won't take the leaders. Peter didn't do anything but confront. And what did the Holy Spirit do? He did the rest. An opportunity right there to confess and she held on to her sin. If she just would have confessed. It's all she had to do. That's all she had to do. But she wouldn't. She held on to it. And Peter says I can see what's coming. Oh, at the door are the feet of the ones who just carried out your husband, and they're coming for you. Again, I don't think he's calling down a curse. I think that's a prophetic prediction. I don't think he's calling down the hand of God. I think he is seeing the hand of God come. You know, the thing that will hold this church back is not the sin in the world, but the sin in the church. What will hold us back is being deceived. Because Satan is coming to sunrise. He may come every week. And he deceives subtly. He convinces you that your heart is a good place to find divine happiness. And it's not. And it's not and the purity of the church must be protected. It's an obligation of the leaders of the church to do that as well. And it's not a fun thing to do. But the church must be marked by a posture of repentance, not perfection, but repentance. Let me share with you one more passage because I think this is very similar to just to show. Yeah, first or, or, or Acts chapter 5 is not the pattern. Like this is the rhythm of God. Every time you come to church, the Holy Spirit's just going to strike a sinner down. That would be a crazy expectation, right? The church is not meant to be like a haunted house, okay? That's not what's happening. But it's a holy house. And what happened in Acts chapter 5 happened. It's not the rhythm, but it happened. But look at this, how it's translated for us. 1 Timothy chapter 5, I believe it's verse 20. Look how... Paul writes to this pastor, look what he says. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. Why? So that the rest may stand in what? Fear. So Paul saw this as a continued practice of his church. you got to protect the purity of the church. Because its witness is so important and Satan is going to try to attack it. So you as a leader, you need to confront it. You need to get out ahead of it. Because if you don't, you compromise the witness of the church. And the Holy Spirit won't have that. So you got to protect that. Again, not to say demanding perfection, no, but opening up opportunity for repentance and calling people to it. That is important. You know, I don't think it's any surprise that in the history of the American church, the great movements of God that we read about, You know, one thing that seems to be marked in all of those different movements is the confession of sin in the church, not outside the church. In the church. Isn't that interesting? Why does the dynamic power of God to move in great revival seem to pivot off the church's posture of repentance? Repentance. Maybe because he knows if Satan is allowed to fill to fill the hearts of those who come to worship and he puts in seeds of his hypocrisy and vanity that he can ruin its witness and effectiveness. Here's my here's my here's my call to you today. Confess. Satan comes to church man. He fills our heart. He speaks to us. He convinces us to speak of, uh, uh, listen to our sinful hearts. He does. Now we should not be afraid of the schemes of Satan. Because we can defeat them if we're sensitive to the movement of the spirit and we don't belittle his word. If we hold up his word, we're sensitive to the movement of the spirit. Then we don't have to worry about that. And I just want to invite you. We're going to have a time of communion here. There'll be elements in the back of the room uh, or in the front of the room in the back of the room. and I'm, I just want to invite you to confess. To really take time to examine your heart. What will hurt this church is the sin in this church. And so let's confess it and get it out. Nobody's perfect here. I'm the first one. I'll admit I'm not perfect. And so I want to invite you to just a real time of confession you can take the elements and then you can go back to your seat and you can do some business with God there and I have to tell you that as I was crafting this message and I was talking about it with a staff I just felt compelled and not as a sense of show and it's not meant by that and I hope you don't receive it that way if you feel what's most honoring to what God is doing in your heart is to take communion and go back to your seat and and really ask the Lord search me out show me my sin Show me the lies I'm believing in Satan. If that's where you need to be in your seat, that's great. But I, I felt compelled that I thought, you know what? What feels genuine of the expression of, of my heart posture is I thought about the front of this room as kind of a, a solidarity of confession. That people could come up, if they felt led, to take their communion And to kneel right here just in the front of the room. Just as a symbol of surrender. And I just imagined. It doesn't have to be everybody. I know that. And I know logistically it's a mess. I get that. But I thought, what would that say to our God? To have a solidarity of confession. To say, you know what? The hero of this church is Jesus Christ. It's not anybody on this stage. It's definitely not me. And it's not any of you. The hero is Jesus, and he has come to our rescue. And so I want to invite you, if you're able, and I know maybe you, you can't, and I get that. Maybe kneeling's not what's, what your body is allowing you to do. Let your harsh posture be one of kneeling. To take this time very seriously. To Think of it like an Ananias, or sorry, a Sapphira moment. Where Peter says, how much did you sell it for? Here's an opportunity. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what lies Satan has told you. I don't know the things in your heart. I don't know those things, but the Spirit does. not so what I offer you is listen to him. Listen to him, confess it to him before you take of the elements. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh Christ, I thank you that you are our victor. Man, you are the slayer of sin. You are triumphant. You are king. Your crucifixion was your inauguration. It was you taking power over sin and death. And we stand in victory, not because we won anything. It's because we point to you as the winner, as our champion. You are our Lord. Holy Spirit, we admit there's still so much sin in us, sin that we deal with, sin that we struggle with. There's so many lies that we hear. That we need to just turn the volume down on that. And we need to come to you. And Holy Spirit, we believe in your work. We truly believe in your work. We believe you can convict. We believe you inspired the scriptures. We believe that. We believe this is the guide to prosperity. This is the guide to flourish spiritually. And we believe you can move in us and draw us and take us places that humble us. I mean, who wants to run into humility? Nobody does. But when the spirit convicts, we rush into that thing, man. We throw away pride. We throw away vanity. We throw away what we think is right. And we submit ourselves to you. So, Father, I just want to give you this time to say, confront us with our sin. Confront me. Confront Paul Robert Crandall with his sin. Let us confess and let us be. Let us be clean pray, Father, that you see over your church today, that you look down and you just see humble confession. I think you'd be pleased. I think you'd be grinning from ear to ear to see your sons and daughters saying, you're our hero. Help us. May you see that today. However it works out, whether it's sitting in a chair or or it's coming up just to the front of the room and to kneel, take a posture of confession. May you be pleased today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.